Mr. Pop. Dark. When the little birds are nasty, and I listen to them too, there's two lonesome people in the whole wide world. That's me and the man in the moon. Hello and welcome to Miskatonic University Radio, a podcast exploring fantasy flight games as Arkham Horror the Card Game. I'm Dane. I'm Dan. And I'm Ben. And today, we're continuing our discussion on the edge of the earth. So last episode, we talked a little bit about the first few scenarios. So if you haven't listened, you should go check out episode 89. Uh, otherwise, today, we're going to be covering the remaining scenarios. And uh, boy, do we have some scenarios. I think for me, these are largely my favorite in the campaign and the real meat and potatoes. Which which one would you say is the meat, and which one would you say is the potatoes? Well, uh, I would say... <laughs> uh, hmm, that's an interesting question. See, people always <laughs> use that expression, but then when you ask them a really simple follow-up question, they just, they got nothing, so... <laughs> if I mean, if one was called, like, the meat of madness, and the other one was, like... Fatal the potato. The other uh, one. The other. The other one. You know, I might be able to to come up with a you know an answer. But there's a lot of snow. That's kind of potatoey, right? I don't know. Mashed. I really like the. I really like the phrase "fatal potato." I think that's going to be just echoing around in my brain for the next thirty or forty <laughs> years. So thanks. Thanks for that, Dane. Is that what you're going to be calling the <laughs> the scenario from now on? Never bring it up. I'm just going to be. I'm going to be like sitting at a bus stop at like eight thirty seven p.m. on like a Thursday, two and a half years from now kind of hungry and like trying to decide what to have for dinner and my brain is just gonna be going fatal potato fatal potato fatal potato fatal potato <laughs> are you worried you'll confuse yourself and think potatoes are fatal to you and like no longer be able to eat potatoes aren't potatoes like low-key very slightly poisonous because they're nightshades like if you don't cook them or something like <laughs> if that you, like if rock? you don't cook them yeah that's why in minecraft they hurt you <laughs> oh wow what an accurate simulation <laughs> of uh, earth's biosphere not entirely unrelated <laughs> Uh, I had a weird experience when I when I heard of fetal AI, the renowned Jinteki uh, uh, net damage agenda, when I where I said fetal damage, fetal damage, fetal damage. Sounds anyway, horrifying. Before before we do any more brain damage How to our listeners, we start talking about this. Let's okay. <laughs> Can someone please start talking about one of the edge of the earth scenarios? Yes. Where, where did we Where did we leave off? Uh, so last time we talked about scenario one and scenario two in its entirety. Which is because of the new structure, that's basically like four-ish scenarios. Like, yeah, like one yeah. and two is like the first half of the campaign and three and four is like the second half. But they're each each of those is like more playing than a single Mythos pack scenario from a previous campaign. Yeah, yeah right, yeah. right. Content. Yeah, so today we're going to talk about the remaining scenarios. So full spoilers, I think, for basically everything in the campaign. And probably spoilers for some other campaigns when we compare them to them. So let's jump into it. So... The next scenario, scenario three, is City of the Elder Things. So we have climbed up the mountain, and now we've actually found the city um, that Danforth and and Dyer had previously seen. And I think our goal is just kind of to explore the city and like find out what's going on in there. And this one's a little unique in that at the beginning you have a choice, sort of, of um, three different like versions of the scenario you can play, but it's based on what. Uh, people you have alive left so like you you talk to all your companions are like oh do we think we should go straight into the city or uh go around the edge or do something else and every time they vote go straight into the city because cooking and takeda are dead so you are stuck <laughs> doing uh the the first version <laughs> the first version of it every time 
So yeah, I, I've only done one layout uh, because in both of my playthroughs, the same people died in the same order. So yeah, so this scenario is we there, we go into the city. There's you have three different layouts. You have slightly different uh, scenario cards for each one, depending on like what choice you go uh, go with. And again, I say choice, but it's determined mostly based on who's alive. I think if there's like a tie between who's alive, you can pick. Yeah, how how does it work again? Like we we get a vote also, right? Uh, no, we don't. We do not get a vote. See, that's <laughs> see, that's weird. Like, why don't we get a vote as well? It's you ask your companions. Unless I misread it wrong both times, which is definitely possible. It's like you check your companions and you say, "Oh, uh, whichever column has the most companions alive, that's the one you go with." So, and it's because those companions, I think, get a buff or something. I mean, I, I guess that's fine, and and I guess I guess it's like they're the experts, and we're just even though we're doing all the fighting and clue collecting and everything, they're the you know, it's really their expedition. We're just hanging out. Yeah, I mean, we're doing most of the heavy lifting, but yeah. But I believe, uh, I don't know what version of, this, of the scenario you played, Dane, in your playthrough, um, but I think they all have generally the same flow. Um, the board is populated with uh, chaos tokens you're not using, which represent keys. So it's a, a return to the key mechanic that we've seen, obviously, in all of Innsmouth and in uh, For the Better Good, maybe other scenarios. And your goal is to find uh, certain keys uh, based on what, what your agenda wants you to do. Uh, you need to find like pairs of keys. So, like, you need to find like both squids and like both uh, cultists or something um, in order to advance to like try to unlock the path uh, that's in the center of the city or maybe at the edge of the city, uh, edge of the map, depending on what your layout is. And the keys are all randomized. So, and the spaces on the board are all randomized. So, it probably offers a lot of replayability there in that you kind of have to like each time you play, you have to sit down and kind of look at the board and be like, all right, which keys are important? Do we have enough time so we can go around and get extra keys? Because there are side objectives for getting some of the keys. Some of them are only for like some side objective, like remove a frost token from the bag or uh, some other benefit. It's mainly a scenario. It's just like a big map you're kind of exploring. Elder things might pop out. There might be some um, bird-like creatures hanging out, um, just chilling in the city. Maybe standing in the middle in the middle of your. Uh, uh, the crossroads you're trying to walk through. Would these would these be like flying birds or or maybe flightless birds? No, I I wouldn't describe them as flying. So like chickens. No, they they won't. They're like birds that they kind of fly through water. I guess they kind of that's and also they also sled in snow. Those are their two modes of transportation. <laughs> that's my understanding. So <laughs> if I didn't know what you were uh, talking about, I'd be like, what is this animal? <laughs> uh if you take a guess of what we're talking about uh send it to us at comments.fbr.fn <laughs> no we're talking about penguins uh so the long-awaited penguins arrived in this scenario uh they pop up in, in, in throughout the way and just kind of sit there they just kind of plop plop down in front of you and, and block the path as you try to explore this giant city and there's sometimes there's other things sometimes there's goo monsters and there's always lots of hazards in the, in the arctic the other thing that with this scenario is like clues aren't directly used for winning the scenario, you need them to uh, pick up. You have to clear off a location before you can pick up the keys, but you can use clues to like teleport around the map or move around the map quickly. So it makes it so you can kind of bounce around the map uh, and target things specifically, or use that to your advantage to get away from hazards or dangers as you need to to get the keys. What did you guys think of this one? Uh, I think this was my favorite favorite scenario in the in the whole campaign. I, I mm. just like picking things up and like using them other places, much like um, Scenario 7 and Innsmouth and like um, For the Greater Good, this kind of reminded me a little bit of too. Um, there's just a lot of interesting things that you can do when you have like an alternative 
sort of not currency, but an alternative resource that you're using to like help you skate around. Um, Cause I think that like, I, I also had the same version as, as you all did. I think we had mm. version one uh, collectively. And I noticed that the different versions, version one seems to be the like kindest in terms of locations away from the end zone. And in version three, you're like literally 11 locations away. You start 11 locations away from the last, from the place that you need to get to ultimately to, to, to leave. So I think that my experience or people's experience might wildly, you know, differ depending on the, the version they got. We just happened to have uh, Elijah die in the, um, the, the plane crash. And then I think Claypool got snatched up by goo or torn in half by the thing or something like that. So. We ended up getting the same one, but I was really happy to see Elder Things. They're one of my favorite spooky Elder Things. Yeah, I guess I guess you're right about the map because I didn't even thought about that. Like the ability to teleport is like very powerful in the the first version because it's like not quite a square, but it's you know it's, it's relatively the, there, there's like a each row and column has four or five locations, so there's a lot of places you can teleport. But in the other ones, like the the second one's kind of shaped like a like a mountain, it's like upside down V. So I guess, oh no, I, I guess a row and column, it goes across. So you could teleport from like one side of the mountain to the other side or something. But the the other one's like, the, the last one's like a zigzaggy pattern. And that means you can't really get efficiently from like one end of the map to the other just by like teleporting twice. So that might be a lot tougher. Because some of the locations are like, oh, you need to bring the two minus two keys to this location and cash them in to get some benefit. So if like you want to be able to do that and the minus twos are like at the beginning of the map and <laughs> Or the the locations at the beginning of the map and the minus two tokens on the other side, it's going to be kind of hard to run back and forth like that. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. They, there are different encounter sets. Like, I think there's not Elder Things in that last one. So maybe that... I don't remember what the Elder Things do in this. Do they... I think they... Do they hinder your movement like the penguins or... They take... So the ones that are included in the set, um, they take your keys and they do like weird things with keys. And the ones that like kind of spawn otherwise will uh, do things with Tekalili. So, like, one of them says okay. you when they attack you, you discard the top three cards of your deck, and then you draw all your weaknesses that you get. So they, like, yeah. kind of draw out the madness, quote-unquote, so to speak. You know, like, that's the kind of thing that they do. Um, the other one, when you attack them for each point of damage you do, you just discard the top card of your deck, which was very uh, frustrating yeah. for, for Harrison because um, he, lost, <laughs> he lost a lot of good sled dogs that he would have been normally able to play. Oh, no! <laughs> So, yeah, I, I didn't realize you had also played the first scenario. I was hoping you would have a slightly different yeah. opinion to find out what the other two are about. I don't know, maybe folks could uh, message us on Discord if, if they played the other ones. But uh, yeah, I thought this was cool. I also like that when you have to kind of pick stuff up and move around the board. This one uh, is kind of another push-your-luck scenario because um, like the main objective, you need to get like two pairs of keys, and that's it, I think. Uh, at least in the first part. I flipped through the other ones, and I think that was the case for the other versions. But all the other pairs of keys are like bonus things you get. Um, not only do you get, I think, experience for getting different pairs and spending them, but you get some other benefit, like remove tokens from the bag, or I don't remember what the other benefits were. I think monsters might get killed off the board, or, or other things like that. So, you know, you can you can choose either go straight for the two pairs that you need, or you can like say, ah, oh, you know, while we're over here on this side of the map, we might as well pick up these other keys. And it's, it's another, like, different way to get victory that's not just, like, get all the clues off this one location or whatever. I think uh, I think my... So I think in most campaigns, 
there's often one scenario that just kind of stands out for not really standing out very much that just is uh oh yeah that's the kind of like normal scenario of this campaign and I, I feel like this is sort of that one, right? Like it's it feels like an Innsmouth scenario, sort of, in that you have a big map and you need to travel around it and pick up clues so you can get keys and then bring those keys to other places. Um, so I, I enjoyed it, and I think I I was playing Monterey Jack, so I had a really great time, obviously doing Monterey Jack stuff. But I yeah, I think of all the scenarios in Edge of the Earth, this is the one that maybe is is the least memorable. Is is that right, or am I am I am I forgetting something cool about it? I did like the penguins. I liked that the penguins show up for the first time. Right? Penguins! Yeah, let's talk about penguins for a second. And by a second I mean like for for a while. Um so we knew that they would be here, right? We we saw the the encounter set when we were sleeving them up. And uh we we're very excited about them. We didn't see them at all outside where they normally should be. But they're in these creepy caves with these weird elder things uh, being all like albino-ish and virtually eyeless, according to H.P. Uh, Lovecraft at the Mountains of Madness. And they are really annoying because they just sit in your way. Ben kind of likened them to like Snorlax in the Pokemon games where they just kind of like sit in your way and you have to spend extra actions to them. It's 100% what they are. I, I uh, thought they were or, like... Or Sudowoodo. <laughs> they were so cute that you'd have to like walk over and like, you know, play with them. Kind of like in the Dreamlands, you know, where you flip over Ulfar and then you're, it's just like, surprise, you're tackled by cats and you have to pet them. You lose the rest of your turn. I feel like you... Did you miss the word giant on the penguin stain? Because I, I picture them as like <laughs> elephant size penguins they're just like plopped in the middle of the road you know doing their own thing my neighbor totoro is a thing right like come on that that's that's the <laughs> image i had in my brain but either way you, you you split it they're really annoying to deal with um they have potentially the the best name of a treachery card in in the whole game now right mm. uh walk 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 up there <laughs> walk 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 can we take a moment to call out like it's usually there's often like one encounter card. We should honestly come up with a nickname for this because it always happens. There's always one encounter card that's like, oh yeah, that's the one you save your rewards for. And usually it's called something like Forbidden Necromancy Chaos or like <laughs> Ultimate Despair or something. And it says something <laughs> like, you know, draw a chaos token and then discard cards for each number on it or something like that. Like it's absolutely brutal yeah. or it's like advance the put doom on the agenda. It's something like that, like Ancient Evils. And in Edge of the Earth, in most scenarios where it's present, that card is called Wuck Wuck Wuck, and what it does <laughs> is it puts a giant penguin on your location. And <laughs> yeah. if, honestly, that might be my single favorite thing about this entire campaign, because I just I think that's great. Yeah, it's it's kind of like the word. Yeah, we, I mean, we've talked about it before. Like in, in Forgotten Age, there's one in almost every scenario. In some of the ones in in this, in the earlier ones anyway, it was kind of harder to discern, other than obvious ancient evils, right? Like ancient right. evils, they just put in there to be that. You forget ancient evils was in every one of the the first scenarios. I remember, yeah, I remember commenting on that uh, while we were playing them. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it, it makes it chaotic, but like this, this specifically just stands out as something that just ruins your turn like whoever you are if if i can't imagine playing it with four people we just played it with two people and when when either a penguin or this was drawn it would just eat up you know the, the guardians almost their entire turn because they have to engage it and then they have to attack it and you know sometimes twice because you don't have the vicious blow in your hand or whatever so yeah i kind of liked it as a design because unless it lands on a location where like all four of your players are standing you don't necessarily need to kill it um, if it lands on a location with one person, it's like, uh, that person loses an action effectively. Um, and killing it doesn't really like, prevent it from coming out later because the walk, walk, walk will resummon it or, uh, you might just draw it again later. 
I, I think what, what makes you need to kill it is it's not so much how many people are currently on that space, although that does affect it. It's also just, is this like a central space that you know people are mm. going to need to move through? Yeah. Because as soon as there's a penguin on a space, you can basically like never travel through that space again. Until you <laughs> yeah, that's right. true. Because it is a cost for entering and leaving, right? That's the yeah. part that I, I didn't even pick up on that until we'd already like seen the card a bunch. And I was like, oh shit, this is horrible. Like this is, <laughs> this is absolutely brutal. Yeah. The cool part about Wuk Wuk Wuk, though, is that it gives you the decision, right, on whether or not you move it to your location, which is a hilarious image, but also, (laughs) or you put Doom on it, which kind of, I can't really envision, but, you know, you just, sometimes you just put Doom on it because it's already engaged with your Guardian, and you're like, yeah, okay, who cares? We're gonna, it doesn't really matter. But the other times where, you know, you're like almost out, you're calculating your moves, you've only got this, this amount of Doom left... And then all of a sudden somebody draws wuk 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 and it's like, sorry, everybody, I have to move the penguin to our location. <laughs> it's just like this herd of penguins just like, you know, is, is randomly around you now. And it's, oh, okay. I guess, I guess this is where we are now. But yeah. So a little aside for penguins because it was, it was, it was great. I, I loved seeing them. And I think this scenario in general felt to me like a breath of fresh air because the last three were kind of maybe not repetitive but the encounter sets just kind of uh were you know we kept seeing the same things so this one we saw some elder things which is really cool finally get to see the the penguins um so that for me was really exciting too yes uh i mean i think it depends what version not all versions even have elder things but definitely the one we played in had the elder things and shoggoths hanging out and Kind of a cool big map, fun, big fun map to explore. Um, going back to Dan's original point, I guess this, I think he might be right. This one maybe doesn't stand out uh, in terms of like the setup unique to this this campaign. It could be, you could like reflavor this very easily and plop it in any of the other campaigns. Like, oh, you're in a big area, you gotta explore and pick up stuff. It it just felt like very much built on the same thing as like three or four of the Innsman scenarios to me, kind of. Yeah, it has the older things that do more stuff with the Ticket LA deck. I mean, if it didn't introduce the penguins, that might have been key, the introduction of the penguins <laughs> to this <laughs> scenario. I do recall that, like, once you advance the first act, I think that unlocks the center area or the exit. It's not necessarily the center. Uh, and also summons back the big uh, the big terror from Beyond the Stars or whatever. The big yeah, terror. I don't remember what it does in this one. Uh, is it just, like, a big massive enemy that blocks the exit? Maybe stops you from spending keys? Yeah. You cannot spend or take control of keys. I think I commented last time that I was like, oh, this isn't as distinct as uh, the Harbinger or uh, the Watcher or whatever, because it's like a different, it's not like the same recurring enemy. But I guess the way they're using this, it's like, oh, it's a familiar enemy, but it's different in each scenario, because every time it comes up, it has a different annoying thing it does that <laughs> counteracts whatever you're producing or trying to do. So that's right. And, you know, it's worth a victory every time, I think. So <laughs> that's always good. Is anything else going on with this scenario, um, or should we move on? Let's move on. All right. So before we move on to scenario four, I was going to bring up the scenario question mark, question mark, question mark, uh, Fatal Mirage. So this scenario is fully optional. Um, you give them the option to do it, I believe, after each scenario, like after scenario one, and scenario two, and scenario three. But the first two times, uh, you don't have the option to do it if... Uh, you have haven't lost three people, I believe it is. You only have the option if three people, three of your partners have dead or have died tragically. Um, so if you've done a good job or been lucky enough to keep everyone alive, other than the the unavoidable deaths, you the first first chance you get to do it is after scenario three, which is which is when we did it. 
in our playthrough. Yeah, same. Both my playthroughs, actually. Because we were very paranoid about keeping everyone alive as much as possible. <laughs> yeah. Which I think was basically the right way to play, pretty much, right? Yeah. I guess I didn't mention it at all, but I think each intro to the scenario, each scenario intro has like, oh, check and, check if so-and-so is alive, or check <laughs> if so-and-so is alive, and you have this uh, supply or whatever. And, you know, you'll get some benefit or avoid some penalty. Very similar to uh, Forgotten Age, actually, except in this one you kind of... Is that better? The, <laughs> Just yeah, better. If, it felt a little bit better because it felt less random, I guess. Like, like scenario three, I think you if if Kensler, who's alive? If the doctor, um, what's her name? Malaya. Um, oh, yeah, Mala. I can't remember her last name. But the the doctor lady, um, Mark's, Mark's new wife slash uh, Kensler's uh, crush. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. Mala said, it, yeah, in my second playthrough, uh, I was Monty and Kim was playing Mark and we just gave her the doctor every time. Uh, and it's like, oh, this is an extra heal card that Dark, Dark, Mark just has access to from the beginning of the game. It's, it's pretty great. Pretty good. Uh, but yeah, if you don't have those at the beginning of Scenario 3, I think you get weaknesses added in your deck. If you don't have the Doctor and don't have maybe Dire, I don't know. Oh, that's one. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as I mentioned, uh, we <laughs> I never had those guys randomly killed off, so I haven't seen what those weaknesses do yet. Uh, it's like Frostbite and Possessed. I'm sure it's fine. I'm sure they're not that bad. Yeah, they interact with Snow Tokens. Oh, hmm. Uh, anyway, Fatal Mirage, the theme of this one is like a, a spooky door appears out of the mist and the and the goo, and you can walk into it if you want, which it seems like a weird option, a weird choice to choose to walk into it. But, you know, pe- people do sometimes, I guess. And if you walk in, you like enter like a dream memory zone where you kind of like get the opportunity to interact with memories of your companions. Um, and maybe help them resolve uh, some some mistake they've made or something they regret in their past. I think it's called Facing Their Demons or something. Yeah. Spoilers. It's it's not Narnia. It's not Hogwarts. <laughs> it's it's just more, like, icy misery. Ladies and gentlemen, it ain't Hogwarts. <laughs> no. <laughs> Sorry, Ben. Yeah, so uh, I think in our first playthrough, we played it at, like, midnight because we were trying to get through all the scenarios in a very limited time period. I, I was absolutely in, like, a fugue state of, like, barely being awake for parts of this scenario. Okay, so, so Dan was in Narnia. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, was, I was somewhere. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, so I don't, yeah, I don't know if Dan even remembers this at all because we uh, played it so late. I but... remember that there was a lot of quest text going on. There was a lot of quest text. Perhaps the most quest text in any scenario. <laughs> yeah. Except maybe, maybe, like, Hadath or something. Maybe one that competes with it. But, like, the gist of it is you, you start in, like, a central location... You get clues and you can uh, unlock new locations. And every every time you unlock, you spend clues. You like flip over the card and you, there's some story text. You can pick like a path to generate. So you can try to figure out which path is related to which character. And eventually, at the end of each path, when you flip it over, it'll give you the chance to either uh, confront a dark memory uh, of a deceased friend. You know, you, you get some victory basically advancing it, or you fight like a a, a phantasmal image of some person or, or or concept or thing that somebody has in their past that you have to kind of defeat with them if you do the latter you get like one victory point and you also like get to upgrade that partner uh so their, their ability and their stats will get a little bit better and you kind of just can repeat that up to nine times and the theme with it is like you can theoretically do this scenario three times so you could potentially try to get, find all nine endings for each person like if they're dead you get the that's either you complete it when they're dead or when they're alive. 
And I believe, actually, if you complete it while they're alive, it protects them from getting randomly marked Yes, in the campaign. So if, if you had bad luck in scenario one, or <laughs> strategically killed off some partners, then you might be able to protect the ones you still have left and, and keep them alive without having to get randomly marked by anyone. How do they get randomly marked in scenario three? There's like a door. I feel like there's a door somebody opens. There's, yeah, a there's a, a door that opens. A different spooky door. And there's goo behind it. <laughs> and they're like, ooh, I want a, I want a peanut butter and jelly. And then, you know, you just, you don't want, you don't yeah. want it. But somebody randomly wants it. Yeah, Dog Boy falls for that every time. What's his name? Elijah? Elijah. Yeah, yeah, every time. He's like, oh, there's a door with goo behind it. Better check it out. Maybe there's some food <laughs> for my, my friend, the dog. <laughs> uh, <laughs> every time. But, uh... There's nothing else really memorable about the scenario. This, this scenario was kind of like really there to like flesh out the characters more and their backstories, I felt. And mechanically, it felt sort of the same. I think in my second playthrough, we like tried to get four of the things completed. And there is a bit of a time crunch if you try to do that many, I think. So it is, it is kind of like a push-your-luck scenario in that you're trying to get as many as you can each time. If you do it three times, then you, you, know, you can kind of do it more casually. I think each time you go back, it becomes a little bit harder. I think some of the stuff scales up. Yeah, no. What were your experience? What was your experience, Dane? I'm I'm honestly surprised that this was like less memorable for you all because this was like one of the most memorable for me, um, because of the fact that you it it builds so much off of like the lore of who you're with, you know, like and who you want to discover the past of. And this for me is like the biggest reason why it, why this scenario this campaign would be replayable because you get to see you get to see like what happened in their past like why they're here and all the different reasons as as to like you know uh all their different relationships between each other right like like Takata and Cookie for example um you kind of get to see a little bit more about that and also like relationships with with like I think Takata's is with her father if I'm not mistaken and for me I don't know. She's tragically dead, dead so I don't know okay <laughs> <laughs> well the cool thing for me was that it kind of felt like very dreamlike or like very game-like for me. It was, there's there's a sort of like a feeling where, you know, like Dark Souls, when you're going to confront a boss that you already died to or something, there's like that, that veil, the fog that you step into and then, you know, you're in a complete shit situation. That's kind of how it felt for me. But it also felt like in, in like a JRPG, like Final Fantasy X, for example, there's these optional quests like later in the, in the, uh, in the game where you can get like their ultimate weapons for each character that you have. And you have to mm-hmm. do a very specific thing with that character. And for me, this felt very much like that. It felt like very much like it's connecting mechanically something that you have grown close to in the lore, which I thought was really cool. And it ended up feeling this whole sort of campaign felt less like a B-movie and more like a JRPG the more that I thought about it. Like the more, and, and I'm guessing that's probably where MJ's inspiration was from as in addition to, you know, horror tropes and, and B movies. But um, part of it felt like it took from that because you, you, it gets really sentimental sometimes. Dane, did you ever actually get Lulu's ultimate weapon by dodging like 200 consecutive lightning strikes? In the you bet I did. <laughs> that was the one that I, I tried a little bit. And finally I was like, you know what? Life is too short. Uh, I think I got all the other ones, but that that remains to me one of the dumbest things in any Final Fantasy game. Um, oh, oh, it sure was. But I I loved that game to death, and I needed to play it. But that that's basically what this reminded me of. Because you right you you kind of develop their path and their past, which is really cool for me because I, I really enjoy the lore in this. 
I think uh, I, I think that kind of explains our different reactions to this. Like if you're if you're fully bought in on the lore and the characters and NPCs of this campaign, then I think you'd probably enjoy this scenario a lot, which it sounds like Dane did. If that didn't really hit for you, then this scenario is just kind of a big thing that you have to because mechanically it was not i would say it was not especially fun compared to the amount of time that it takes is that accurate yeah that's why i was coming more coming from was the mechanical side like i like the story text and i like that it fills out the npcs more uh, that kind of story text i kind of wish was able to be more dispersed a little bit into like each scenario uh, i think we mentioned this last time but because you don't know you don't know who's alive in whatever scenario i guess they, they probably couldn't do that as easily yeah but yeah, I like the flavor that was out in, in here, but mechanically, it kind of felt like, all right, we explore these three locations. Each location maybe has something that's sort of themed around like what it is. Like, um, you know, it's harder to, uh, st- when you're in the university, it's harder to find clues because it's, you know, higher knowledge or whatever or something. But then at the end, every time I was like, okay, we flip this over, they're dead, so we we're at the end of this path, or they're alive, so we get some flavor text, and now we have to deal with their their enemy. And their enemies were all felt relatively the same. I think they they had like slightly different ways you could deal with them, or you could just punch them a bunch. And then like after you defeated them, you started over. You like teleported back to the beginning and followed another path, and you kind of just kept doing that. So mechanically, I didn't think it was that exciting. Other than when like it was like the last three turns, it was like, oh, can we get two more of these somehow? <laughs> That's the most interesting part of like the win more scenarios to me is usually like the last like three rounds or whatever when you're trying to figure out how to get that one last thing. But this is like 15 rounds. Yeah, we it, it takes a long time. And it, yeah, it is it is also worth calling out, yeah, that uh you know, a lot of the other campaigns the final scenario takes place in some kind of like other plane or other realm or something as like the big climax. In this campaign, that's not the case, but you have this as the kind of like surreal otherworldly scenario. Mm. So that's yeah, that's an interesting way to do things. Yeah. I think I think the concession that I'd probably make for for my maybe gripe with this scenario is just that it's very much the same. Like I would have loved to have seen like, depending on what partner you're pursuing, different things matter. Whereas it's literally just a clue grab, like just get as many clues as possible. Mm -hmm. There's like tons of clues that spawn on the locations. And if you basically just, just get our cape lifts, (laughs) like, (laughs) like for this scenario, I was like, I was just kicking myself. I was like, man, if I had the other arcade glyphs, we would probably be able to get like five because all you need is clues. And I think that what Ben was saying about um, each of the like adversaries that you get to at the end of each trail, um, you can deal with them a little bit differently. Like one, you can spend resources if it's Takata or whatever. Like they they all kind of have a tie in to what the partner mechanically right. does. I would have loved to have seen that like more along the way rather than just at the end because it's just clues. Um, and if you're struggling or you know if your mystics aren't finding their clue spells, you're going to have a really bad time. But I think one of the other great parts of this is it, it seems to be pretty divisive, divisive. So like, if you don't like it, you don't even have to play it. Like there's, there's no need to complete this. I don't know how the mythos busters are going to, are going to do their, uh, their, their, their run through this because like, are they going to have to do every single one of them? Yeah. But, but like, I think for me, I would have loved to have seen this happen regardless on the third one or, uh, before the third one whenever the first time is that you can do it because i realized that a lot of the lore from like people coming here helped tie me better to them so i i was more invested in them you know when when they got taken by the peanut butter and jelly door or whatever you know like i wanted to see that happen more Uh, i wanted to see more of that lore earlier on yeah i agree with that i think if this had been slotted in like after the first scenario 
and you were kind of had the chance to maybe hear from people a little bit more then uh i think that can be good i think it maybe should have been a little bit shorter and balanced out to make it so the win more so you could still do all nine uh with three tries but like your first playthrough i think being 15 is like kind of long but yeah i like the flavor text i I, i'm guessing for balance reasons they want you to have like three people dead before you do it so you can't like somehow make them all immune to getting marked or whatever (laughs) um (laughs) or something but um yeah i I think that it might be more fun in the more like typical way that you would end up in this scenario than where we ended up with it with not only playing it the third time kind of the third opportunity so yeah and i think i'd be interested i don't know i don't know if i'd be that excited to like try to force us force us to do it three times so that you could try to get all nine things in the picture display or whatever the the final condition is because I feel like replaying it wouldn't be that exciting in one campaign playthrough. I think it'll feel like that that one boss in um, Skyward Sword that you have to fight like ten times, um, and it's like <laughs> the exact same fight every time, but like very slightly harder. The giant, yeah. it's a giant goo monster, isn't it? That sucks. Yeah, I I think it would end up feeling kind of bad if like I would love to do. I would I'd love to set out to do that. The idea of that is really exciting to me, but if you're on like you know the second time through or the third time through this. And you know that you just, it's impossible to get the last one. That would feel mega bad, right? Like yeah. you, when you, you got eight of the nine and you're like, this is it, I'm going to do it. And then, you know, you get hit by ancient evils or whatever the equivalent in this scenario is. And you're just like, I can't do it. This sucks. I hate this game. <laughs> you know, like that would just feel incredibly bad to me. Uh, any, anything else to say about fatal mirage or is it, is it time to fatal, fatal potato mirage or is it time to, <laughs> time to move on? My only note on it is I, I think it does give an interesting opportunity for when you play through the game, uh, especially if maybe if you're playing expert or hard mode. Maybe you really want to keep one of those partners alive, and you maybe don't care about some other ones. You can uh, strategically uh, eliminate <clears throat> partners during scenario the first playthrough of scenario one, so that you have three people dead by the time you hit the first checkpoint or the first um, interlude. And then you could do this your first time through, and maybe you like really want to keep Ellsworth alive or or um, Malaya or whoever. And you can go and like get their memories, unlock their their improved form. Uh, I forget what the keyword is. And then you have them safe for the rest of the campaign, so they won't get picked up by a giant goo monster or walk into a door. You know. So I think like strategically, you could could use this, utilize this to keep keep to reduce the randomness uh, later, um, and help yourself out in some of the later scenarios. But other than that, yeah, you either have to decide like trying to do all nine or just maybe skip it if you if you don't care about upgrading them, um, and you've read through the story text like because when you replay the campaign, you've already read all the story text. I don't know, I know for Dan, but I don't know what you did. I don't know if you do you reread the story text every time you replay a campaign if you've read it a couple times already. Yes, you do. All right, I don't know. I usually fast forward through it because it's like I already I already know the deal here. I read it all because I usually miss something. Oh, that's fair. So. <laughs> So why don't we move on to the last scenario, the Heart of Madness, or maybe just Heart of Madness. I don't know. That's like a dramatic enough name that there should be a little like dun 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 every time you say it, right? It is a pretty solid name. So we've gotten, we've gone to the tunnels, we've gotten, I think, under the city, and we are kind of exploring like the labyrinth underneath. We've realized that like, oh, that city up on the surface, that was like just the tip of the city, and they have like a vast underground network built out this whole place eons ago but we it seems like they built this around uh the goo monster and they built this as like a prison basically for it but it's escaping so we have to try to 
stop that from happening. And this one's split into two parts. The first part uh, is completely optional. And the second part is kind of like the final scenario. Um, and you have to do it. Uh, I realized in my notes, I forgot to kind of split up what was the same in both of them. But I think just off of my memory, uh, they both have like this kind of like pinwheel uh, shaped map or maybe star shaped map where it's like a central location and it branches off into five different spokes and then they're like connected and like shaped like a wheel. So, which is cool because it's, you know, the elder things are like the five, uh, five, you know, five pointed symmetry. Lovecraft is very scared of like five sided things. Uh, so it kind of, you know, fits well with that. Yeah, no, I definitely like the map layout. Uh, I think, uh, much like all the <laughs> scenarios, this get paid, uh, it's a very big map. So you need to make sure you have table space or maybe some type of markers to indicate uh, you know, like which which things are on the same level in the ring or whatever. It's pretty firmly in what I've what, what I think we should start calling the Monterey Jack zone. <laughs> <laughs> the spokes, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, every every campaign, every scenario of this, except maybe the second one and maybe Fatal Mirage, is definitely very Monterey Jack friendly. Um, definitely but, climbing the one where you climb the mountain is not Monterey yeah. Jack friendly, but basically all the other ones are at least a little bit. But in the first scenario, the the first part, you're, which I think is called the Great Seal, maybe? At least that's what the counter set is called. And we should be very clear for our listeners, in case they haven't played this yet and they're still listening to this episode, even though this is Antarctica, we're not talking about like the aquatic mammal seal. We're talking about I was about very a upset of, by that. There, yeah, there's not like a, a single really great seal that you get to meet and kind of like pet. Uh, this is about a, a more like a magical, you know, eldritch seal. Yeah, we're not like rescuing seals from eldritch beings and bringing them to like the park ranger or whatever. Even though that would have been awesome. That uh, would have, <laughs> yes. Uh, Somebody needs to make actual seal tokens though. Like come on. We are instead trying to like find and activate the five parts of this like ancient seal that is keeping the big spooky thing sealed, right? Yeah. Right. Not not feeding them and making them happy and then get delivered into the park ranger. Again, even though that would yeah. be really cool. Yeah, so um both of them have this giant, huge map. Uh, in the first part, you're trying to find the seals, the magical seals, um, and then activate them and like bring them back to like the gate in the center, the gate of Yaqua, which I don't think is the name of the horrible monster. I think it's just the name of the gate. I know that guy. But, He's pretty cool. Mm, the architect, maybe. So this one, you're encouraged to like run around the map. The seal, you don't know where the seals are until you find the location that says, you know, put the seal here. And then you need to like spend some number of clues and some other resource or do some type of test in order to pick up the seal. And then you need to run it over to another location and I think do a test there or do some type spend some type of resources to activate the seal. And then you have to bring it to the middle. And it doesn't sound too bad, but one of the tricks with it is you can never have two activated seals in the same location or I think the world is destroyed or something. <laughs> oh yes. That was uh, so good. Which is really, really cool. Actually. <laughs> that yeah. was so good. You can't have two active seals, right? In the same place. Right. So like you can't, so you, you're pathfinding around the map. You have to, you can't like just say, Oh, well I can pick up seal a, B and C and then activate them a, B and C and then go drop them off. You have to keep going through the center or passing them off to somebody else to like bring over, which I think makes the, scenario very dynamic in trying to figure out like yeah how many of these can we activate it's another win more how many of these can we activate you know how do we path around path around and and get them all done and is there any evils in this there is ancient evils in this god <laughs> so so it's a race against the clock to try to activate all the seals and there's i think there's goo monsters that come out and there's also penguins there's penguins walking around here sitting oh, on top of penguins. like wherever you want to activate a seal 
or dead in the center sometimes, uh, real bad. But there's also goo monsters that like kind of there's some goo monsters that like ignore ignore you until you actually have a seal and then they'll follow you around and attack you. And I think the first the first time whenever you activate a seal, I think something good happens. So there's like side benefits to like getting certain ones, which felt good. Yeah. So even if you don't get all five, you can still get some benefits from them. No, notably, real quick, the, the penguins wanted no part in this. Mm-hmm. This is just their home. They've lived here for yeah. a very long time. And they're only in your way because that's like, you know, probably on the way to where they eat or something. They're they're the innocent civilians. That's that's the they, real tragedy. Exactly. And, and you still need to murder them. Sometimes. Well, you, again, you don't need to murder them. You can try to avoid them, but it's at a, at a cost, you know? That's true. That's true. Sometimes, sometimes you basically do. The path to the greater good, or just the regular good is sometimes harder than the the murderous one, you know? So. Well, so so this is, I, I think that the real, like, achievement that, that there should be in Edge of the Earth is beat the game without ever killing a penguin, and you'd have to make use of all the all the guardian cards that we don't play very often that are, like, move an enemy, like, one space away or something like that. Oh, you know? sure, sure. Well, there's that there's that rogue card that lets you, like, switch places with an enemy that came out yep. in this expansion. Like, oh, that'd yeah. Be, that'd be pretty good for moving around penguins. Yeah. <laughs> that would be good. So you said you said the word achievement, Dan, and I was like, oh, I should go look up to see if there actually is a penguin-based achievement. I wouldn't be surprised if there were. It was. I don't remember there being one. Anyway, that was the main gist of part one. What did you guys think? I enjoyed part one. I think the whole latter half of this campaign, again, I, I really particularly enjoyed. I think the decision to make it so that you cannot just get all the seals, activate them all, and then bring them to the middle was the thing that made this good. Because if right. it, that were the case... This would just be, okay, let the Seeker do the thing, murder all the things again, right? But, like, there were actual decisions that the Guardian had to make that weren't just murdering enemies. (laughs) And, like, the the Seeker had to, like, include some cards. We were just two people to, like, deal with enemies in the case that they jumped on her. And Daisy has ways to do that, of course. But, like... um, there we had to split up eventually because we really wanted to get all of them and in the end we didn't actually get all of them um we only got we only got i think four of the five so that was it was it was interesting for us because there were some enemies that dealt with like the seals like that moved faster if you were holding an active one um but there was one card that we just never got to see which dealt damage to you or something like that if you have an active seal and then you drop it or something like that i don't remember Oh yeah, that helps Mark draw a card. It's really nice. Actually. <laughs> uh, you'd love to see those in that phase. Yeah, I think in both our playthroughs we got three and a half is what I would say. Like we got three activated and one, uh, one we didn't have time to activate. Yeah, and it it felt like we were felt like we were like a couple of good breaks away for, or bad breaks away yeah. from getting all five. Like if we'd been a little bit luckier, we probably could have done it. We had the exact same experience. I really like this scenario. I think it's like tuned pretty well. It feels like, at least in my experience, like the the layout of the map, while randomized, it's there's enough different locations that you have like different paths around the map. Like there's a couple locations you can use to teleport between them by doing like a test or something. There's enough time in the the scenario that you can kind of you have at least enough time to check out all the locations and backtrack a little bit, but not too much time where it's like oh it's easy I can just circle the map twice or whatever. Uh, unless maybe you're Monterey Jack. <laughs> but um and I, yeah, this felt like the best win more to me because it was like very clear it's like oh we got to get these five things we got to get them all to the center and that's it it's straightforward so I, yeah i think i like this one a lot my gripe with it though is that getting the seals into the center didn't feel as impactful as i wanted it to be like you get like an experience for each one and then you move on to the next scenario and you can use them in the next scenario to get some benefits but 
Uh, they are definitely good benefits, but I don't know if they felt like they made or break made or, or broke the final scenario. So I, I liked the mechanics of this one a lot, and I liked running on the city, and I liked the, I really liked the like oh you can't have two in the same place or the world implodes or whatever <laughs> mechanic. I also really like this one. I would say this is up there, maybe with like one whichever I forget which part of uh, Ice and Death I liked best, but like this is up there for maybe the best one of the campaign for me. The way the seals worked was just really, really great. The seals in this are basically like keys, but they're kind of the best possible version of keys. Like we've when we've talked about keys in the past, we've always said they're cool, but they're coolest when they actually have effects that are unique to each key and that make you play around them instead of just being basically a symbol of you collect all the clues from some location. So the fact that you can't have two activated keys on the same location is amazing. Um, the fact that each of them does something when you, even though that it, it didn't really matter that much, the fact that each of them kind of does something special when you activate it and you activate each of them in different ways. Um, that was really great. Like this one, it reminded me a little bit of this, of like a, you know, climactic thing at the end, like the, the pillar of autumn at the end of the, the, the maw at the end of the first halo or something like that. Like, uh, I, I really, really, really like this one. My only, my only complaint about it, I'm going to kind of mothball for a few minutes because it's, I, it's basically complaints about how they kind of divided this into part one and part two and how that is structured. So I'll, I'll save that to maybe talk about during part two, but I, I definitely really like this scenario and I thought it was really fun. Yeah. Uh, oh, and this scenario, if you skip it, this scenario has an interlude in the middle of it that one of your guys can get murked again. But like, if if like one of the friends they've made along the way is still alive, they can get saved from being murked, which is kind of nice. Um, but if you skip, this one is optional, and if you skip over it, then that means you can keep your partners alive, I guess. Hooray! Um, but this this one, I don't think I'd ever skip because as as I think it sounds like we all are in agreement, this was a a very fun one. So that's that's our mur pick of the week. Don't skip Heart of Madness Part One. You'd, yeah. you'd, you'd be crazy to skip it. Uh, as for part two, so two uses a similar map, although unlike the first one, you uh, unlike scenario one where like you in between each checkpoint, you kind of just leave the map on the board and you don't have to change it too much. This one, you kind of decide to reset the map again. Uh, it just has, has the same layout, but you've swapped in some of the cards. Uh, the goal in this one is you're trying to destroy uh, five pillars, which are... Um, <laughs> Those pylons. Pylons, yeah. Actually, I forget the flavor. Are they keeping the entity in, or are they keeping like the the prison stable or something? Like, when you destroy them, the place collapses. So, I guess that's to try to to, to crush the entity underneath it or whatever. But anyway, that's the goal. You try to destroy the five things. They are placed randomly on the map. Any seals that you activated or uh, brought uh, as dormant with you uh, come into this one. And certain seals you can activate at certain pylon, or you can um, use on certain pylons to give you some benefit. And then I think very quickly, every round, uh, a, a nameless creature pops out and kind of spreads around the map, and you end up with this growing mass of monster that kind of fills up the whole map. The nameless madness. Yeah, the nameless madness. And when you like attack it or evade it, like the number of points you succeed by on it determines like how many uh, nodes of the blob get evaded. So if you're spread out, you might be able to like help evade. Uh, the blob for someone that's a couple locations away from you by evading it enough or hitting it really hard with, say, a extremely overpowered hammer. Yeah, because I, I was at first worried as we were kind of starting to understand how the spreading thing worked, that it was going to be like, oh, this is like a really scary enraged timer. This is just going to make everything unplayable within a few turns. But we, we kind of just figured out a solution that involved a lady hitting a hammer very, very hard every turn. <laughs> and that, that worked pretty well. 
Yeah, I mean, even in two-player where we I didn't have the hammer, we we didn't spread out too much, so you only had to evade and succeed by a couple points to like evade enough that it wouldn't yeah. hurt you too much. Yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. at least at least in the in this first chunk of uh, of the scenario. So, and then uh, you could you had to like attack the pylons um, by like discovering clues or like literally like, attacking the location, which I thought was kind of neat. Which was cool. Yeah, I like that. And I think you you know the locations of the five pylons at the start, right? You yeah. see the backs, yeah, yeah. But you yeah. randomly distribute them, and if mm. they're too close to one another, or no, if it, if they're all in the inner spoke, yeah, or like the inner wheel, you have to redo them so that they're like you know more spread out. Basically, I think in both of my playthroughs, like all of them were in one, uh, or three of them were in one column. Oh, really? That's called. <laughs> and then like there was like one or two other ones, so we were able to like blast through three of them pretty quick, and then just go grab the other two. Yeah, we we had the same experience. And the other locations are some of the ones are from the the first part. I think they're the ones that let you activate the seals that are still on the board. So like if you want to, you can go over and activate a seal that you've you were able to pick up but not activate. And then you're like turning them in at the best pylons gives benefits. Like one of them's like every time you attack a pylon, you do plus one damage, or you know the shroud is reduced by two or whatever. So the the the, the seals like help you either defensively or offensively while you're at the pylons, which is nice, and it help can help accelerate you through the scenario a little bit. Uh, the thing is, once you destroy all five of them, uh, the building collapses, and you advance to like a, a final, final escape act, where the amount of progress, like how long it took you to do that first part, doesn't matter at all, really, because you reset down to like three blobs, and then you have to like try to get out of, you have to go through a tunnel, I think it is, or something, or ramp. It's a ramp, right? Titanic it's ramp. Titanic yeah. ramp. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it does matter. Which was cool. It was, it was a very, yeah, it was a very, like, Halo-ass, Metroid-ass, like, uh, yeah. you know, escape after after the end of the last boss. I, I thought that was neat. Yeah, totally. I love the Nameless Madness in the, in this in, in particular. Like, just the way that it kind of manifests, because at first, you can kind of place those seals, and it's not directly apparent. There's some huge enemies that can spawn, but for the most part, like, if you have seals, you're doing really great, because... The seals make things so much easier, I think. And we were able to, to blaze through kind of like the first half of this in that um, we, we got the seals set. We, we punched a couple of the places before the Nameless Madness actually started to like manifest. So it was neat to see the final boss, so to speak, of the campaign emerge in such a way that I don't think we've seen before. We Like maybe Mordoth, but, you know, nobody really likes that scenario. So like in this... It felt really great. For me specifically, it felt like uh, the, the ending of Princess Mononoke. And that's why I really enjoyed it, because I love that movie. <laughs> and that there's this huge goo monster that's, like, eating everything, and you have to, like, run away from it, because you can't kill it. And at first I thought they hunted, but they just kind of, like, spread. It's just like there's 15 copies of them, and wherever you are at the beginning of your turn, they just manifest. And it just, ha- and it just grows and grows and grows. And then, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Ben, but the way that we played the last half of it was that for how many ever doom you have is the number of them that you take with you or how many have respond basically is the number of them that spawn on the titanic ramp with you and then you set three aside that can spawn later i feel like you might have read it wrong it says set all but three copies of the nameless madness aside so it sets you down to three is my in my interpretation of that so it starts you up for three and then you still get one more added as you go and it becomes a bigger and bigger blob that's chasing you effectively Unless you manage to get uh, ahead quickly, which you can do if you pick up clues fast enough or pass like some agility tests. Uh, I think if the agenda advances, you still get to do the final escape, but you set aside 
somewhere out based on how many pylons you killed or something. But the final escape for us, I think we had like Monterey Jack in both of my playthroughs, which made getting clues very easy and passing agility tests for at least one character very easy. And you can use the clues to like skip during the agility tests to move out. So it made the final escape, the final escape kind of felt very lackluster to me because we just kind of got out very quickly and there wasn't very much tension. But if if you're not playing like a very high velocity clue getter or very high agility characters, then maybe it's a little scarier. What what was your experience, Dane? If you're not playing a very high velocity clue getter, I have a suggestion for you. You should try playing <laughs> one of those. I know that's exactly our experience. Um, Daisy was really well equipped by that point. She basically had everything that she needed out. So it was for us. I already had a Pathfinder out. So uh, and obviously Safeguard was just the MVP for, for Larry because I would um, I would get the clues by like drawn in flame and then I would Pathfinder the next ramp get the clues with a deduction and then shortcut to the next ramp and then, you know, get all the clues. And we just did that like over the course of three rounds. And we got out very, very fast because I found with, with an old book of lore, like going with Abigail, I just found both my shortcuts very easily and all of my deductions that I needed. So we just got out super, super fast. I think in that way, it kind of feels, I mean, I just kind of have a general malignity towards seekers, but like, this felt very much like if you're playing a seeker, you just get rewarded. Same thing kind of with Final Mirage. And that's that's like kind of a gripe that I had for it. But it did feel kind of climactic, especially the way that we played it. Because we had like seven of the blobs out at the beginning of the ramp with us. I think when we played it, I was Monterey Jack. And I, I kind of just went off and did at least one of the pylons like totally solo. Because I could pick up a ton of clues. I could move really fast. I could evade anything that I needed to. Uh, and in particular, I could like I wasn't as good at dealing with the uh, nameless madness as was it Lily? I think with the hammer, Lily had the hammer because yeah. she could basically do it like every turn. I I needed to like commit a bunch of stuff so I could kind of do it like every few turns, but that was enough. Yeah, kind of kind of like ov- overall thoughts about this. I don't know what you guys thought. I I thought this was neat, but the thing that was weird to me was like between part one and part two of this. I thought that part one was kind of better or more fun because of the seals. Like the seals were really neat and the pylons were cool, but I I thought that the game of like collecting and activating the seals was, was more interesting. So it was weird to me that that part was optional and the reward for it was not even that great. When we started playing this, I was kind of assuming that sort of like devour below or something, if you got all of the seals before the end of the scenario, you would basically like immediately win and not have to do part two. And it turns out that's not the case. So it, it's weird because this really cool scenario, uh, Heart of Madness Part 1, is optional and you don't. Even, there's really not even that much of a reason to do it because having the seals doesn't help you that much against the pylons in Part 2. And then Part 2 is kind of just like a, a somewhat less interesting version of the same general type of scenario. And that's the one that you actually do have to do. So I don't know. I, I kind of wish that these were like maybe united into one long scenario or that they were it was just kind of structured differently like all the pieces are there the map is great the the seals are really cool the pylons are kind of cool but just the way that these two were structured together i felt like was not as good as it could have been yeah i definitely agree with most of that we, I didn't, we didn't successfully get the five seals every time but i you know i peeked to see what the resolution would be and it does not like seal the thing in forever which i assumed it would it's yeah it really seal. it really seems like it should <laughs> yeah. So, like, I assumed that, like, it was supposed to be very, very difficult to do that, as opposed to, like, Devour Below, where, uh, depending on your investigators, it can be, like, very easy to <laughs> to do the first yeah, part yeah. of that. And I thought, like, the second part was like, oh, no, the monster broke out because we failed to seal it. 
But either way, the monster breaks out. So I, I kind of feel like this should have been, could have been the final scenario. Maybe story-wise, they, they didn't want it to be that way for, for whatever reason. But yeah, like this felt like it could be, like, oh, we're trying to seal, and then like if you, you fail at just the last second, you don't, just barely don't get the fifth one in, which is kind of kind of where we were at. Then like, oh, it bursts out, and now you have to like fight the monster. It's like, oh, right, we gotta destroy it. We just gotta destroy it, you know. <laughs> yeah. Resort to, <laughs> resort to dynamiting everything, you know. <laughs> but I kind of, I kind of would have liked it if like the part two was still about doing the seals. Like, okay, you failed to totally seal it before it could pop out, but now it's harder. Now it's like you have to kind of beat it, and you still have to like get the seals in place or something like that. Yeah, I agree that that could have made sense, where where the seals just kind of became like little things that buffed you in the second part rather than like the main objective, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I didn't like. I'm kind of there with you in terms of like that not being a thing. I thought that since we didn't get all five seals, we just lost. You know, like like <laughs> I thought that we would like it would it would be incredibly hard for us to proceed into the next one or whatever. There'd be some huge penalty, um, but there really wasn't. And I did like how they implemented them because for for us it was really important. Um, it it made it go from kind of borderline okay we were doing pretty well but if anything kind of got in our way it'd be a huge hindrance to like oh this is completely trivializing everything because like one of them reduces the enemy's fight and evade values by a certain amount and and one of them does something else that that made it really easy when we were on like pylons negative two shroud or something like that so it just made things like incredibly easy to the point where like uh leo could even help picking up some of the clues not that he really needed to do that because he could just punch it but like it felt like that was the point where we're like, oh, okay, this is great. We have all we have four or five seals, and for for us, it felt like, I guess I wish, like, more, the more seals you had, you kind of had more of a static bonus that did something for you rather than it just being like, well, you had four of the four of the five, so you're rewarded. It's like, oh, okay, all right. <laughs> so it was kind of anticlimactic in that way, I think. You know what it reminded me the most of this whole scenario, uh, the Mountains of Madness board game. Uh, where, the, where you're higher than that, and at the very end, you're like, "Oh wait, we got Now we have like three turns where we have to fly the fly the hell out of here. Yeah, uh, that's exactly what this felt like. It's like, "All right, we explored the place, and now we got to, now we just gotta get the hell out." Um, Again, big, biggest it, problem with Edge of the Earth campaign expansion does not come with a small toy plane. Uh, really, really big missed <laughs> opportunity there from FFG. Easy, easy points, you know. I mean, they could have at least thrown a penguin miniature in there. Yeah, know? come on. <laughs> Or a penguin token or something. I don't know. Just give give us something. They gave us the seal tokens, which the seal tokens are like kind of neat. They're cool. I think all they're like the the angle on them is so that they all fit together in like a little star. I think perfectly, which is kind of fun. That is really neat. I kind of feel like those tokens were printed because they were already printing the frost tokens, and they're like, oh, we have more space <laughs> on the board. Yeah, because they're, they're not really used outside of that. But I mean, they're kind of they're kind of neat, you know. I mean, it's yeah, it's helpful to like know that you have it. It's like the keys, but they they didn't they can't assume that you have the keys or something because they can't assume that you own the Innsmouth uh, box. So right. I almost wondered if they at one point in in the design of these, if the um the one where you're running up the hill was designed with the seals at first. Like you get them out in the Arctic wilderness, like they've like blown out from the city or something like that. And you're, you have to find them scattered across the, uh, the Arctic wilderness. And then you have to bring them up the hill with you. And those are what's dropping. I would have loved that because there would have been more gravity to the things that you're picking up. I think the only reason why there was gravity is because like, you know, for completionists, uh, you, you want to get all the little, the radio and the little, uh, carabiner or whatever the hell it's called, uh, up, <laughs> up the hill. But like, 
I would there there would have been a lot more gravity if you you're holding onto the seals and you're trying to carry them up and there's just like these weird forces that are pushing them down, you know, be it magnetic or or eldritch spooky forces or whatever. Um and for them to have more of an appearance cuz I was kind of surprised that they only appeared in these last two these last two parts. So like if you like discovered them early on after the crash and like took them with you, that kind of could have been cool, could have given them more weight, I think. Yeah. Potential for more bonuses, more like chaos tokens effects, things like that too. Uh, any anything else to say about part two of Heart of Madness specifically, or should we sort of segue to talking about uh, the campaign as a whole? Look, look, look. I was just going to briefly mention like the ending. Uh, I got two different endings in my playthroughs. One of them, you need to have a certain character alive and interact with them. I think every time during the interlude to get it, and the other one's just like kind of the the successfully escaped ending. Uh, and I was very clear, and neither one of them seemed like a, oh, we definitely won a scenario. Like, <laughs> oh, one yeah, of them yeah, it, yeah. One of them, it's, it, the, the entity is contained in a sense, and the other one yeah. is, it's contained in a sense under a pile of rubble. Uh, <laughs> and maybe not, maybe not that contained. So I, I don't know, yeah. I mean, I guess that's Lovecraft, you sort of like, you survived, but you know, he didn't really, <laughs> didn't really Question deal with marks? the problem, you know. I don't know what, Dean, you, you're more, uh, purveyor of uh it's not the right word at all but you, you like you like the story text i think <laughs> connoisseur <laughs> connoisseur yes thank you uh, i knew there was an r in there what do you think date of the ending so we did have uh the ally that you need alive at the end to get that ending and it's funny because right at the beginning of heart of madness part two they kind of just fuck off they just they're just like i know what we have to do okay bye and and Larry was kind of hanging out with them the whole time. And he was like, no, how am I going to heal my dogs? You know, like, <laughs> so, so that was, that was kind of unfortunate, but like, heal it's, dogs. it's cool that she comes back at the end and you kind of get to see that, uh, that happen. And like the reasons for everything happening, you got a little bit more of a, re- like, oh, okay. I understand now what kind of a little bit more what's going on. I'm glad that like it kind of developed that in the character rather than you getting that straight to your face. You know, there's there's like kind of stuff in the periphery that's going on all over the place, which felt really cool. I, I like that a lot, but I haven't gotten any of the resolutions. I've only played through it once, um, but I did enjoy that resolution because you kind of like come out of the lip of the cave and things are looking horrible. And then all your friends are there and dogs are there. And then you jump on the sled and you, know, you fly away and and Dr. Kendler's not looking so great. <laughs> yeah. So I kind of wish like they had introduced like some random character at the very beginning that was like, oh, there's Joe. And then at the very end, it's like, oh, Joe shows up in the plane. You know, he's here to save us. Uh, it's sort of like, <laughs> it's so sort of like the five other uh, beat cops and uh, medical students that didn't get killed off are the ones that show up or whatever. It, um, yeah, it is a little bit of kind of a deus ex machina just at the end. Oh, there was one plane left and a couple other people alive in Antarctica and here they are to rescue you. But eh, yeah, it's fine. You know? I mean, that's that's kind of standard like end yeah, of adventure that's all, that's all movie right. stuff. That That's fine. And then there's like a little bit of an epilogue where like if you have certain like pairs of characters alive or certain conditions met, you you know you kind of resolve their stories a bit. I haven't like experienced the fullness full stories for all of them because I haven't played it through too many times. I feel like some characters were written better than others, and some relationships were were stronger than others. Uh, I know you were very attached to to Dog Boy and his uh, tragic demise, <laughs> Dane. I thought like Ellsworth and Claypool are in very well. They had like a very, it was like, oh, these guys have a past. And it's like, oh, it's maybe more than it seems. And at the end, it kind of resolves. It's like, oh, okay. Um, but both of them were alive. So it's like, all right. So they're, you know, they might have uh, put aside the past and, and be able to move forward. And I thought that was cool. Danforth is still probably crazy, I think. Um, Danforth number one. Stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh yeah. So one of the one of the neat things kind of in in the lore uh that that was was a thing where if an ally would get killed off, um if they weren't the resolute version, there was a chance for for us in I think it was after scenario 4 that it happened where Danforth got picked uh and Danforth almost walked into the door and because uh the professor was alive the professor actually saves Danforth from going in. So he can't, so very specifically, like if, if, you yeah. know, if one of the allies is alive, if this character gets picked and is not resolute, there's still a way for them to survive, which I thought was really cool. Cause that yeah. also kind of helps develop that camaraderie in the middle of scenario four. That's where that pops up. Like each one is dependent on one other one, uh, which kind of ties them together. But it's like, Oh, you know, they, they pulled them out of the days or whatever. Which is how uh, I think that's actually how Ellsworth survived for us in my in my second playthrough is because we had gotten the resolute versions of four of the six survivors and the other two were uh, Ellsworth and Claypool and we had realized how godly Ellsworth was <laughs> so I was very concerned he was going to get killed off and he got picked but uh, luckily I think because Claypool was there uh, he like pulled him out so he got to survive so you know I, I like that I like the story of the characters like being peppered throughout more than it being front-loaded like it was in this. But like when it's peppered throughout, it's like a little bit at the beginning of each scenario, a little bit in the middle. That's fun. Uh, we already started talking about it a little bit, uh, but why don't we go into talking about the campaign as a whole, our overall impressions. I'll let you guys go first. What's interesting about this is, so I think our, our, our take on Dunwich, or at least my take on Dunwich, is kind of, you know, it's cool for what it is, but I don't really have any desire to replay it because it's clearly them sort of still figuring out how to do stuff. Like it's it was designed before the core set was released and it doesn't have a lot of the kind of like interesting modern stuff that we like about the more modern iterations of the game. And I mean, edge of the earth is a lot better than that, but it reminds me of Dunwich in a, in a little bit in that it's them sort of like learning how to use the new one big box structure for the first time. So I think all of the pieces uh, are here are really good. And I, and I really like a lot of things about it. And I, I definitely really did like this campaign a lot but I think that after a couple more of these all-in-one box campaigns, I think we might look back at Edge of the Earth and say, like, oh, yeah, there's a lot there. It's pretty cool. But since that time, they've gotten a lot better at building campaigns using this slightly less linear, slightly less rigid all-in-one box structure. Does Do you guys sort of agree with that? Yeah, word for word. <laughs> That's basically <laughs> what I was going to say. I love a lot of the themes. I love a lot of uh, lore, obviously. I think that that's, like, the highlight for me. And honestly kind of brings it to a level above a lot of the other uh, campaigns for me. But kind of mechanically, there are some kind of clunky things that I feel like also bring it down to the in that way, very much like Dunwich was. Like in that, uh, it just seemed a little bit like primordial, I guess, in, in sort of development. So yeah, I totally agree with that. Uh, I, I'm mostly on the same page. I, I think I like this campaign a lot. I think it's maybe just because I like the Windmores a lot, and I'm uh, big into like hunting achievements or, or being a completionist or whatnot. And there's a lot of that in this campaign for me. There was um, a lot of that stuff. So, and 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 some of it is not like super easy to do your first playthrough and the blind through, and some of it's not even that easy to do on on the repeat playthroughs. So I think there's some more replayability for me here. Um, I like all the different story paths. You know, I like the story text generally. Uh, I liked most of the scenarios. Uh, as I said, there, there's one or two that were kind of whiffs, but most of them I liked. I do agree that like some of the scenarios were a little bit repetitive, like doing all three parts of scenario one just kind of felt very long. But there were definitely distinct differences, but it's more like, oh, this is act one, act two, and act three. And instead of being like half hour to an hour to play through, each one's two and a half hours or whatever. 
So I'm hoping in like future box sets, they rely a little bit less on like the checkpointing. But then again, like scenario four, the two different pieces, while they use similar maps and like similar encounter sets, I thought that those were definitely way more distinct to me in terms of like what you're doing and how you play through them. So two different ways it was done there. I think one worked a lot better. But yeah, I can see them definitely like fleshing out this format more and making better use of the design space here because they have had a huge restriction removed from them in that they don't have to make a, li- a basically linear eight scenario campaign. And so now I think I think there'll be a lot of cool new options, although I am definitely expecting some campaign where it's like eight scenarios and you can somehow play them in any order. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> that would be kind of neat. It's going to be a, a, a confusing miasma of um, Kakosa nonsense or whatever, but... Miasma, um, another one of the themes of Edge of the Earth. <laughs> it was. Yeah, I, I, I feel like the enemy of this, the overall like spookiness in this was just kind of like... I guess it's the unknown or whatever, but that's like a general Lovecraft thing. I don't know. There wasn't like a one. It was a little bit less personified than uh, like, to me, one of the cool things about the dream eaters, like part side a, or the dream side is like Nyarlathotep has a lot of personality kind of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You get a little bit less of that here, but I I like the, you know, the scary black ooze. It's a little bit of a callback to uh, the X-Files fight the future, which is a, which is a pretty good movie, you know? So, well, it's supposed to be more, it's kind of like the thing type of thing where it's, it's, you have a group of characters, you're supposed to like the characters and there's kind of like a, an unknown entity that's silly killing people off or whatever. Right. I guess guess that's most, I guess that's a lot of horror movies, but I think it did do a good job of that. It was like, Oh, it's this weird thing that's happening. People are dying off slowly. I like some of them, you know, I'm sad about some (laughs) of them. Other ones, it's okay, whatever. But yeah, overall I liked it. Um, I guess, do we want to try to compare it to other campaigns? Like, is this like a top three for any of you guys or is it more in the middle or is it slipped down to the bottom? I think it's like third or fourth for me. It's kind of in the middle for me. Like I, I wouldn't put it up there with um, Carcosa or Circle Undone, but it's in that kind of like almost there section. Like it's, uh, I, I have to play it again before I decide if I like it better or worse than Innsmouth, but it's kind of like rough, roughly in that tier, I would say. I also think it'll grow on me too, because there's a lot of different interactions that you just don't get to experience with limited plays, right? Like there's, there's a lot of like allies that you can like take specific teams with, you know, like how you're talking mm-hmm. about like Mark synergizes with one of the people. There there were like a lot of charges and secrets on things that I was like, oh man, if I was doing like a charges or secret build, or if I just like had those in my deck, taking this would feel ridiculous, right? You know what I mean? So like you can like kind of strategize mechanically around those allies to help like alleviate some of the stress of you know dealing with the the frost tokens and stuff like that in a really cool way and i really like that part of it what about you ben yeah i i I think i would slot this into my top three i think it might bump out uh circle undone i don't my second playthrough i liked a lot more than the first playthrough i think our first playthrough we were very rushed because we were trying to cram it into like two weekends with limited time but yeah the second playthrough uh i played with kim over the holidays it was a good good time. Um, I, I, think they, takes... I think they got you with the six pages of story text and the nine different places <laughs> to do. Like that's that's just like pure pure Ben nonsense. I, I mean, think. that was a good challenge. Um, but I, I liked it a lot. I I'll have to see if like more pl- replaying it. Uh, I liked it as much as re- replaying through Innsmouth and whatnot. But I I feel like it's pretty good. Um, and I, I think yeah. it's a a really good sign that they're still able to pump out like content news campaigns that we like a lot yeah 100 yeah. it, it was definitely it was interesting to see their take on mountains of madness because that is i think that is something that fans have been wanting to see for a long mm-hmm. time 
Totally. It's definitely one of the checkboxes. Like, they, they have to do this campaign. They have to do Dunwich. They have to do Mounds of Madness. They gotta do something in the pyramids or whatever, you know. I would I would say the biggest unchecked box, Cthulhu, maybe? Yeah, that's the one. Right? That's everybody's one. I suspect we will never see a Cthulhu campaign. I think... Really? I think, I think MJ is specifically avoiding that. I, I don't think we'll, I don't think we'll like literally like fight Cthulhu, but I think that it might make an appearance at some point. Do you guys want to do the thing where we, do you guys want to each mention something we liked and something we didn't like as we've done in the past, or should we skip that? Let's do it really quick. I would say something that I really liked, I liked the big maps that had interesting structure to them and kind of big set piece scenarios like um, Ice and Death Part 3 and Heart of Madness Part 1 especially. Something that I didn't like, the the nine NPCs that you keep learning about and that talk to each other, and I, I, I just didn't care about that. I, that's just too, that's just to me, that's like too much text for these types of for a game like this. I think that these campaigns work better when the storytelling is more in like the art on the cards and the, the way the map is laid out and the way that the gameplay, it, like using the gameplay to tell the story and less just like reading big chunks of text. And I, I know a lot of people disagree and that's totally fine, but just like personally, like that's that more than anything else is what keeps Edge of the Earth from being like a pure A plus success for me. It's just the huge reliance on like NPCs uh, doing stuff. Yeah, for for me, one thing that I liked was the exact opposite. <laughs> I loved that <laughs> that aspect. That was my absolute favorite part. It felt very much like like a TV show or like a, like again like a video game where where you know you've got like Waka talking to Lulu about things and you kind of like learn about their different intricacies and um, but without of, the of them but without the visuals or the voice acting or any of that, just text. It's in your brain. It's like reading a book, Dan. You know what I mean? It is reading a book. <laughs> a very, it's like a very, very short book. It's like reading like a two or three page book. Yeah, and I and I, for me that worked really well. For okay. me, like okay. all of those, all of those interactions, like seeing somebody get swept up by the the terror of the stars was was just like so sad, you know. And seeing like somebody even before I we even really got to know like their their things and like the mirage and stuff like that was really sad for me. <laughs> so like we we just grew attached to them and we really enjoyed that aspect of it. One thing I didn't like was probably kind of for how fluid the the scenarios themselves felt, how rigid the encounter sets inside of them felt. Like, I don't want to see Ancient Evils ever again. Uh, I don't, <laughs> like, for the first three scenarios, I kind of got really bored of, of the, as cool as they were, I really enjoyed the things that stick to the locations. Um, I thought those were really great, but I was really relieved to see something different when fatal mirage came or when um the city of the altar things came so that for me was kind of a miss um and then some of them again like the clue stuff felt really binary and i never like anything that rewards seekers for anything ever <laughs> i think for me i guess what i didn't like is i think on the blind playthrough you don't really know which which characters are good or which locations to go to and that's great but i think on repeat playthroughs like scenario one there's one location that has the eight shelter so if you want to keep everyone alive you and get the most victory and skip and skip the second one you just always go straight for that so that might hurt that aspect might hurt the replayability a little bit and you also know like which you also might learn like which characters you want to talk to during every interlude for like the best benefit or whatever after you've maybe flipped through them um it's kind of like supplies in forgotten age and forgotten age you can kind of like figure out like oh i you know you always bring a blanket and rope or or an oil or whatever I i forget which ones it is now but uh chalk basically and I guess I wish there was a little bit more randomness in those aspects. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely does feel like a, a sort of fixed version of supplies, which is great. Yeah. Like, it is an improvement, but it still kind of has a little bit of the same underlying problem. Yeah. I mean, there's still some randomness. Like, there are characters that get randomly murked, but you do have, you can, you can, if you go to the Mirage Zone or whatever, you can have control. And I, I do mean, think it, it's a little it weird. It sounds like based on your experience, it's not random at all. It's the same every time. No, it right? actually is the same every time, you're right? <laughs> uh, I, I got the same seed every, I guess. I don't know. Exactly. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of weird that, like, in the back of my brain, like, the optimal way to play this is to kill off uh, <laughs> these three NPCs in scenario one, <laughs> and then bring the rest, put, put the rest of them in uh, immune life jackets. Just, like, push them out of the plane at the very beginning, like, all right, <laughs> I know you guys aren't going to like this, but trust me, I've been here before, this is the best, this is what's best for everybody. Yeah, but I definitely do like the the windmoreness in many scenarios, uh, it's a little bit different each one. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, I love having some type of like a uh, side quest to go for, you know, like an achievement to get. It makes replaying it more interesting, especially I think a lot of these are like they're doable, but uh, you have to like try to get them. You don't just kind of passively get them. Some scenarios when you play them now, like Midnight Masks or whatever, it's like eh, you have to get all six, but you usually get all six these days uh, with the card pool and not. And while, while these ones are like the seals seem very challenging, getting all the supplies in scenario one is pretty challenging especially if you if you skip any of the the parts then it's very hard i think and or you don't have monterey jack <laughs> to run around and get all the clues and pick up everything so yeah um always a big fan of the win wars um i like it when they come up with different ways to do it that definitely makes this replayable for me so a lot of people have been asking me and i've heard from harrison that people are asking if this is a really good first campaign for people just entering the game because obviously this is the first one that has its own campaign box where you don't have to spend money on all these different mythos packs. Maybe it's just a part of the product of its time, but also how do you all feel about this being uh, the first for somebody or should you recommend elsewhere? I think this is probably a pretty strong campaign to start with. It um, has a good card pool of like player cards and the rules in each scenario. Each scenario does feel different for the most part. But like setup isn't that confusing. There's nothing weird, super weird going on with like five agendas or you know t- two acts or like doom behaving differently in different scenarios. So like like most of the objectives are like pick up these objects and move them around in different ways. So I think it's like not too rules complicated, which I think is something that might scare people off if they jump into a really weird campaign that has a lot of rules going on. And yeah, because it's all contained in one box. Like previous to this, the recommendation that I saw on like Forbes is like, oh, which campaign should I do first? Like whichever one you can find. <laughs> uh, um, this is you just have to find the one the one box instead of six or seven or seven or eight different products, which I think benefits it. Uh, maybe once we see more reprints, I might still like be like, uh, you know, maybe try out Carcosa or something. But you know, even this this is like mostly simpler than Carcosa, so I think this is a good pickup for anyone trying to get into the game. Is is it simpler than Carcosa? I, I don't know, maybe. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I kind of think that there's no, like, perfect option for what to start with. Like, there's, I think there's kind of trade-offs with, with any of the campaigns. I would probably, is, is the Dunwich single box version out yet? Has that been released? Uh, it's coming yet. next month, I think. I think it's supposed to be quarter one, assuming, you know, shipping delays. So quarter three. Yeah. I think <laughs> once once that is released, if I was talking to a group of people who none of them have played the game before, like a, a, a totally newbie group, I would probably say start with that. But um, I think this would this would also be fine. Like Dane said, it's nice that it's all in one box. It's a pretty good campaign. Um, it's got some fun stuff in it. Yeah, why, why not? I mean, the, I think the bad things to start with would be like, 
I think any of like Forgotten Age, Circle Undone, Dream Eaters would all be kind of like bad to start with. And honestly, maybe even Innsmouth too. So I think like this is, at least it's not one of those. I think for me, the only thing that I have in in uh, kind of speaking against it being your first is that setting up the campaigns and the scenarios was kind of a nightmare for me because some of the agendas were different like encounter sets and that was kind of like my brain just couldn't handle it (laughs) and also this isn't the medium even or the median for encounter like text right like like for for folks who who like for the dance of the world who really just love the mechanics and really want to get into the game this is not something that I would like, okay, let's sit down and play through this because there's a lot of stuff that happens in the text and you cannot just sit down and play this like you can Dunwich, right? Like Dunwich, you can you basically don't have to read anything. You can just set up the, the game and go. Whereas this, you need to resolve who dies in the plane crash. You need to figure out like who you're, who's being brought with you, etc. So I think that for that reason, I would maybe advise against this for the first one and to wait for the Dunwich like Dan said too. That's basically why I was saying Dunwich or even Carcosa once they make a single box version of yeah. that. Just because I feel like it's easier to like, there are eight scenarios. Each one has a little instructions to set it up and you, you go from one to the other. That is like Carcosa has doubt and conviction, I guess, but like just in general, there's less stuff to keep track of that persists between scenarios. There's, there's less of like a weird complicated structure of what scenario you do next. I think all of that would make Dunwich or Carcosa maybe easier for a totally first time group. But I mean, people can figure it out. If you're used to playing weird board games and stuff, uh, you you know, it's, it's not insurmountable. Well, everyone, what are your thoughts on Edge of the Earth? Are you enjoying the new campaign box format? Who's your favorite partner? And what's your favorite partner gear? Rest in peace, that partner. Uh, let us know. Leave us a comment or email us at comments at MUR.FM. Uh, to stay current on what we're doing, follow us on social networks, including Instagram and Twitch, or join our Discord server. You can find the links to all these at social.mur.fm. And if you really enjoy what we do and want to get more involved, you can become one of our patrons at patreon.com slash University Radio. Or just leave us a nice review on your favorite podcast source. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye, everybody. Bye.